So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. We live in extremely confusing and extremely confused times. Confusion abounds pretty much everywhere we look. It's in the media, it's in sports, it's in our daily lives. Our culture has so exalted self-esteem that anyone can now claim to be anything. And that is, let's be honest, that is kind of confusing. And these claims, according to the values of our culture, are things that cannot be challenged. The greatest moral evil in the eyes of our culture is just to not accept what another person claims to be by their own nature. And so, for example, men can claim to be women. Women can claim to be men. Euro-Caucasians can claim to be African-American or or, or black. And the list goes on and on and on. And these things are all very, very confusing because what they're claiming contradicts what the evidence supports. And sadly, the church hasn't been immune from... This type of confusion, but Jesus never promised that it would be. No, he promised there would be tares among the wheat. He promised that there would be people who came in who weren't believers, who infiltrated the church. And so the church has suffered from this. You know you live in an age of utter confusion when absolutely anybody can claim to be a Christian, and yet when we look at the lives of those who are making such a claim, making such a profession. Most of the time we can see that they don't even come close to resembling someone who practices biblical Christianity. And I'm talking about professional athletes, actors, politicians, you know, right, right down to just the average Joe. An enormous percentage of which profess to be Christians, and yet so many who profess to be Christians are entirely indistinguishable from the world, from a non-Christian. And this is one of the primary reasons that I selected the book of 1 John for us to study, because confusion is absolutely everywhere in our culture, and it's in the church. It hasn't just permeated the culture, it has also infiltrated and permeated the church. And yet, as we've seen in the first two chapters of the book of 1 John, for anyone who would claim to be in Christ, there are actually several tests, if you will, that Scripture presents, that John presents, or or you might even say confronts us with. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest in our self-assessment, we can gain assurance that we are legitimately Christian or gain assurance that we're not legitimately Christian based on how we score on these tests. And so to review the book up to this point, let's take a look at some of the tests that we've already covered. The first one was in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The question really boils down to, do you walk in the light or do you walk in the darkness? The Christian, obviously, walks in the light because God is light and in him is no darkness. The second one, 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10. Do you claim to be without sin? Or do you confess your sin? And the word confess, remember, literally means to agree with what God says about it. Homo legeo means same word. 
Do you agree with what God's word identifies as sin and evil and what his word identifies as good? Number three, from chapter two, verses three to five, do you say that you know God without obeying him? Or do you obey him? Because to claim to be in Christ and yet walk in steadfast disobedience is to be a liar, according to John. That's his word. The fourth one, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, do you love them the way that Jesus commanded? Because John made it clear that you cannot love God, and you cannot, uh, sorry, he, he commanded us to love one another, and this is a test of whether we love the world or whether we love him, because to love his people is to love him. And that ties in with uh, verses 15 to 17. Do you love the world? Or do you do the will of God? Are you living to please the world or are you living to please God? Because you can't do both. John made it clear. You cannot love God and the world. The values of each system are diametrically opposed to one another. Number six, verses 18 to 19. Do you isolate yourself from worship, from congregational worship? Or do you rejoice in assembling with the body of Christ? Because there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. The person, according to John, the person who abandons fellowship with the saints demonstrates that they were never a part of this body to begin with, according to John. Seventh one, verses 22 to 23, and this is a big one. Do you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ? Or do you deny that Jesus is the Christ, fully God and fully man. These are very important tests. They kind of show us where we stand. And today we come to yet another test, and that is the test of righteousness. And if you haven't understood or fully grasped the importance of personal righteousness, John has something to say about how important it truly is. And I understand this is something our culture hates. You know, one of the most derogatory uh, things that they can say to us is, oh, you're so self-righteous. And so in response, I think we've taken this idea of personal righteousness and just said, oh, I don't have to have any personal righteousness. I don't have any. Uh, all I have is the righteousness of Christ. We'll see what John says about that today. There are three words that our study today will focus on. And those three words are abide, appear, and ashamed. Abide, appear, and ashamed. The concept of abiding in Christ is a theme that has permeated the second chapter of 1 John. John has told us how that's accomplished, how we abide, how our faith remains steadfast and secure. He told us that it's by abiding in the foundational, fundamental truths of the Word of God, which we find in His Word in Scripture. And secondly, it's by the power and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So we abide by the Scriptures and the Spirit. But what does it mean to abide? It means to stay. It means not to drift away. To remain right where you are or to dwell or, or live within something. That's what it means to abide. And John's told us how God accomplishes that, that end in our lives. But now John continues by writing this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He says, And now, little children, abide, there it is again, 
abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so he uses this term again. There it is again. Abide. Abide. Don't walk away. Stay where you are. Remain. And he uses the word in an imperative present tense, which tells us that we are to continue doing it. It's not just something we did in the past. It's not just something that we will do in the future. It's something that leads from the past into the future, right, going right through the present. To keep on keeping on. To continue to remain steadfast and unwavering in our faith in Christ. This word abide, it's been all over the place in chapter 2. Starting in chapter 2, John has told us in verse 6, he says, Whoever whoever says he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in him. In the light. Verse 14, he said, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 17, he said, and the world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 19, he's speaking of the false Christians who had abandoned them. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And that word remained in that verse is the same Greek word that gets translated over and over here as abide. Meno is the word. Then he said, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And finally, he said, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Abide, abide, abide. Remain, abide. He uses this word over and over and over again. And it's almost like he's trying to get a point across. Almost, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we could miss it. No, you can't miss it. He's, he's trying to get our attention. One of the most important principles that you, can, that you can learn to practice when you study the Bible is to look for repetition. And if an author uses a verb like abide, you know, maybe two or three times within a, within a passage you can be pretty confident that this is an important principle that he's trying to communicate. And if he uses that word ten times in a passage, which is how many times John has used it prior to our passage today, ten times, you can be assured that this is a principle that is central to the author's entire understanding of the gospel and of Christianity As a whole, perhaps we could say that the only thing more important than understanding what it means to abide is to actually do it. Not just to hear it, but to do it. In fact, I'm confident that John would argue, and I would agree with him, that this is what real 
bona fide, legitimate Christianity is all about. It is about abiding in Christ. I would say that one of the most ridiculous claims that somebody can make is that they're a Christian when they're not even abiding. And they don't know what it means to abide, and they have no interest in abiding. One cannot claim to be a Christian without abiding in Christ. So we've seen what it means to abide in Christ. We've seen how God accomplishes this purpose in the lives of his people. And the question that we're left with is, how do we know? How do we know if we're abiding in Christ? What does that look like on a practical level? Well, there's only one other place in Scripture where the word abide is so thoroughly emphasized. It's found other places in Scripture, but it's not emphasized uh, any place more than the pinnacle of John's gospel testimony in the 15th chapter of John. We see this word over and over here in the 11 verses of this book, of this passage. We read Jesus say this to his disciples, and I know we read this earlier, but listen for the words here. Listen very closely to the verbs. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Abide, abide, abide. Now there are four persons that are identified in this little passage that Jesus gives here. First is the true vine. Who's that? Anybody? Who's the true vine? Jesus. Jesus is the true vine. That's an easy one. The second is the vine dresser. Who's the vine dresser? The Father. The Father is the vine dresser. Again, this seems pretty easy and obvious, and that's the beautiful thing about what Jesus is saying here. He keeps it very simple. He keeps it clear. It's very easy for us to understand exactly what he's saying. The third person or people are branches that bear fruit, and fourth, there are branches that do not bear fruit. Again, this is, this is really simple. And straightforward. It's, it's usually not very difficult to tell the difference between a branch that does bear fruit and a branch that does not bear fruit. It only gets complicated when we break the fruit-bearing branches down into good fruit and bad fruit, I suppose, because Jesus talked about good fruit and bad fruit in Matthew chapter 7. But the branch that is in Christ, that is the Christian who abides, bears 
good fruit. The Father prunes these branches, these, these Christians, in order that they would bear more fruit. The branch that is not in Christ is gathered up and burned. The branches that abide in Christ flourish. And they continue to bear much fruit. Apart from Christ, no branch can bear any good fruit. Verse 6, Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And that's why it is so important to abide. That's why it's so important to stay in Christ. Because if the idea of separation from Christ for all of eternity doesn't convince you to abide, maybe the idea of spending eternity in hell will. Jesus says here in verse 8 that this is what glorifies God the Father. That we abide, and by doing so, that we bear much fruit. Not just fruit. He moves, there's kind of a progression here. He goes from fruit to more fruit to much fruit. And by doing this, by bearing fruit, what do we do? We prove to be his disciples. There's a concept that our culture hates. Prove to whom? Well, first of all, I'd say you, you, you prove it to yourself if, if you're wise and you examine your life regularly. But you also prove it to others. In our culture, you know, we kind of live by the idea that we don't have to prove anything to anybody. But that is certainly not a notion that is derived from the faithful study of Scripture. I'm always amused. That's the word I'll use. I'm always amused when self-professing Christians defend themselves or other Christians by saying, well, Jesus said, judge not. Anybody ever heard a Christian use that to defend sin? He did indeed say, judge not, but he didn't stop there. At the end of what he was saying there about judging, he said, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to do what? To take the speck out of your brother's eye. Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. Did you catch what he did? Did you catch what Jesus said there? He said, then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, then you will be able to judge. Let's, use this, let's apply this practically. What he's saying is, if you have uh, an addiction to pornography, for example, don't go to your brother and say, dude, you've got you to quit looking at porn. Work on the issue yourself first. Repent. Turn to God. Turn away from this idol. And then you'll be able to help your brother. Jesus wasn't saying that we're not supposed to judge or to pass judgments. He was teaching us how to judge correctly. And later on in the same chapter, Jesus says, you know, the whole thing about you'll, you'll know a, a tree by its fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Now one would have to be absolutely foolish to think that that doesn't involve passing judgments. And yet he says it in the passage that follows the whole judge not passage. So Jesus was not instructing us to avoid passing judgments. Rather, he was teaching us to judge without hypocrisy. To judge correctly. John chapter 15 verse 8. In this passage, 
where Jesus is saying, abide, 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 over and over. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove. Prove. Give evidence to be my disciples. And this is what happens when we actually do abide. This is how we know that we're abiding. We bear good fruit in our lives. And this is how we know that somebody else is abiding as well, because they've got the good fruit in their lives to prove that they are abiding in Christ. I guess the only question we're left with is, what does it mean to bear good fruit? What, what, what does this fruit look like? And honestly, this is such an enormous subject, it would require an, an entire sermon series on its own just to answer it uh, entirely and sufficiently. But I think, uh, you know, let, let me give you my answer in a nutshell. I think it has to start with what Jesus says here in John chapter 15, verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments... If you keep my commandments, and you might say, oh, well, we're not under the law. Right, you're not saved by keeping the law. You're not saved by works. You're saved for them. Good works flow out of the redeemed life, not into. Does that make sense? So we start with this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is the fruit of obedience. The fruit of obedience should be evident in the life of every true Christian. Earlier in chapter 2 of 1 John, he wrote, Whoever says, I know him, I, I know Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now we're talking about an obedience that the unbeliever will not and cannot practice. It is a gospel fueled, gospel-driven obedience that only the new creation in Christ is capable of walking in. And this isn't a bitter obedience. You know, sometimes, like, let's say I tell my, my daughter to take out the trash. She might be like, whatever, Dad, you know, I'm, I'm, take out the trash. Again, I'm the only one who ever does it. You know, and, and you know, so there's, there's like this bitterness there, and, and we need to talk it out and hug it out. No, I'm... <laughs> It's not a bitter obedience to the commands of Christ that we're talking about. This is a joyful surrender. This is a joyful obedience. In Philippians chapter 2, I think Paul, Paul understands this. And so he says uh, to, the, to the Philippian church, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is not an obedience that grumbles and complains as it obeys. It's an obedience that is joyful. It's an obedience that is willing. And it's an obedience that Paul says will result in Christians shining as lights in the world in the midst of a wicked and depraved world. 
The fruit of obedience will also always yield a fruit of repentance as well, because none of us is perfectly obedient to the commands of Christ or the will of God. So repentance is necessary. The true Christian will learn to so hate their sin that they will fight. They will fight the grip that sin has in their life. And that means repenting on a regular ongoing basis because they desire to follow the commands of Christ and to fulfill the will of God. It means doing what John told us back in chapter 1, confessing our sins. That is agreeing with God's assessment of what is good and what is evil. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 8, Jesus said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the first two types of fruit that you should always see in the life of a true believer, the fruit of obedience. And because we fail at that, we fail at obedience, at perfect obedience, we'll also see the fruit of repentance. We should also see the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And these aren't so much actions as they are attitudes. These are the, the attitudes that we have behind what we do. Of course, these are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And again, these are things that the unsaved, that the, the reprobate life and mind cannot grow in nor produce in the truest biblical sense. So the fruit of obedience, the fruit of repentance, driven by the fruit of the Spirit, and last, but, but definitely not least, I mean, we could, like I said, we could do this for weeks. We should also see the fruit of righteousness. Paul wrote to the Philippians and expressed his prayer that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. And we're going to come back to this one, to the, to the fruit of righteousness. The point that John is making here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, is that we must abide. We must abide. This isn't optional. This is central to the Christian life. We must abide in Christ. We've seen what that means. We've seen how it's accomplished. We've seen what it looks like or, or what it produces. And now we'll see why. Why this is so important. Why we must abide. John says, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. How many of you guys know that Jesus is coming again? He's coming back. And the imminent return of Christ, that is, it could happen any minute, that's what it means to be imminent, the imminent return of Christ is one of the central themes of the entire New Testament. If you study the New Testament, you see this theme absolutely everywhere. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. And this is one of the great hopes, great promises that the Christian has. The hope of this fulfilled promise changes everything. It keeps us going. It keeps us alert, on the lookout, and it provides incentive to stay the course, to remain faithfully committed, to abide. Jesus will return. And when He does, there will be no little manger. 
There will be no cross. There will be no suffering on His behalf. His last words on the cross were, It is finished. Everything that He came the first time to accomplish was accomplished. The sacrifice has been made. The gospel has gone forth for 2,000 years so far. And Christ has built His church. He continues to build His church. And the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. He will return to accomplish two things. To bring relief to His people. And to bring retribution to His enemies. And nobody, nobody, will stand in His way. Revelation chapter 19, verse 5 describes that day when it says, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's not going to be a happy day for those who remain steadfastly rebellious against Him for those who have not abided in Him. He will return, and when He does, He'll accomplish two things, relief, retribution, and there will be two types of people. First of all, there will be those who will be ashamed. They will stand in shame before Him. And these are the enemies of Christ. These are people who have remained steadfastly rebellious, steadfastly disobedient toward the very God who created them. And has sustained them. These are people who have rejected him. Who have rejected the gospel message. And some of those will be ashamed. But some of those who are going to be ashamed will be people who thought they were Christians. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said of the day that he returns, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And who's going to say this? He doesn't say a few. He says many. Many what? Many people who made a false profession of faith in Christ. Many people who thought they were Christians, but they didn't abide. They weren't weren't interested in being obedient to the commands of Christ. See, these aren't people who denied God's existence entirely. They're not atheists. These aren't people who belonged to some kind of cult or some kind of false religion. These are people that he's specifically referring to. These are people who made some sort of profession of faith at some point in their lives, but it was shallow. It was superficial. It meant nothing to them and it changed nothing in them. Their profession, their faith wasn't the real thing. It wasn't a legitimate profession of faith. And he says they're going to boast about what? They're going to boast about how good they were. Their their good works, the miraculous things that they did or seemingly miraculous things that they did. And Jesus will say to the many who wrongly believed that they were in him, I never knew you. Depart from me. And here's the key part. You workers of lawlessness. Workers of of lawlessness. Of course, this, this whole idea of being lawless is the antithesis, the very opposite of obedience and of righteousness. 
This passage starts with Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does what? The one who does the will of the Father. He's talking about the fruit of practical righteousness, which comes from obedience, which comes from abiding in Christ. Those who have not abided will be greatly, greatly ashamed on the day that Jesus returns. And it will be too late. Their time for repentance and faith in Christ will have already come and gone. And so the only thing Jesus will say to these people is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The first type of person on the day that Christ returns will be those who will be ashamed. The second type of person on the day of Christ's return will be those who are not ashamed, those who are confident, those who are unashamed. These are the few, the few who have abided in Christ. They walked in obedience to the will of the Father. They didn't stray from the Master who called and redeemed them. He will have been the one who was their greatest treasure on earth. And thus, they will have held to the hope of his appearance, of his return. They'll have no reason to fear his judgment because they know that they are in Christ and they know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Paul's last letter that we know about and which has been preserved in Scripture through the ages, is the book of 2 Timothy. This was the last book that he wrote. And in the final chapter of this book, one of the final things that we know that Paul wrote was this. We read in chapter 4, verse 8, 2 Timothy. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The word righteous is very important and in what I believe is probably the most scathing critique of fallen man in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 starts this assessment by God of fallen man by saying, none is righteous. No, not one. It's almost as if that's the first thing that becomes evident to God as he looks down, although he's all-knowing. This is the first thing that he says. Above all, none is is righteous, no, not one. And yet, a crown of righteousness awaits his people who have joyfully anticipated his return and anticipated his appearing. Now, Scripture tells us very clearly that God's requirement for salvation is perfect righteousness. The bad news is we don't have it. The bad news is every single one of us has no righteousness on our own to show for. On our own, every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is completely deserving of spending eternity in hell because that's the rightful and just consequence of sin. But God in His great mercy, has redeemed a people for Himself. Not that anybody deserves it. You can't deserve mercy by definition. It's entirely by His mercy that He grants grace 
through faith in Christ. But He still requires righteousness. So how can the righteous God of the universe redeem an unrighteous people? The answer is something that if you and I had a million years to come up with, we never would have thought of it. If you put the wisest group of people together in a think tank, they never would have come up with it. How can a righteous God redeem an unrighteous people? By imputing our sin, our unrighteousness, our lawlessness to Christ, and by imputing His righteousness back to us. Paul says to the Corinthians, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is our perfect and complete righteousness before God. And that's our primary understanding of righteousness, that apart from Christ, we have absolutely none to speak of. His righteousness imputed or or transferred to us is our only hope of salvation, is our only hope of reconciliation with God. And yet John says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Jesus is perfectly righteous and Jesus alone is perfectly righteous. And while we're covered by His righteousness through grace, there is also a sense in which we are expected to grow in and to practice righteousness as well. This is what you might call a, a complementary truth. So it looks like there are two sides of, the, uh, of an issue here, but really they are, they're complementing each other. They're working together. The righteousness of Christ covers us, yes, and yet the true believer will also practice Righteousness. Oh, but, but wait a minute. D- didn't, Paul, didn't Paul say, didn't we just read that Paul said that none is righteous? That this is God's assessment of man. None is righteous. No, not one. Yes, he did. He did say that. But that was God's assessment of fallen man prior to and apart from his work of redemption and grace. It's leading into the whole reason that he sent his son to redeem. Grace changes everything. Part of fallen man's assessment was also that none is good. And yet goodness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Likewise, true Christians will persevere in their faith and will abide in Christ and will practice righteousness. And God will keep them eternally secure in their salvation through His Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit And he will teach us and enable us not only to abide, but also to practice and grow in personal righteousness. Now the word righteous basically means to move straight, to move in a a straight line. Thus the word righteous really means to to, to act in the right or the the straight way. So used in, in reference to moral or morality, Righteous means living a moral life. It means living or acting in the right way as God reveals in His Word what the right way is. Well, what is this way? Well, we know what it isn't. It's not determining for ourselves what is 
good or what is evil. That's the cry of our culture, that there are no moral absolutes and that everyone needs to just figure out for themselves what's right and what's wrong for them. If there's one thing that we learn from Scripture about that, it's that trying to figure out for ourselves what's right and wrong on our own leads to death. It leads to hell. It's a very, very bad idea. It leads to many, many calling good what is evil and calling evil what is good. The right way is God's way. God's character and God's word reveal to us what is absolutely right and absolutely wrong. God and God alone is the measure of moral right and wrong. And John's telling us here in 1 John, in no uncertain terms, that the true, the true Christian will do everything that they can to remain within the moral boundaries that God has revealed. Yes, we will fall short. There's grace for that. But we'll come back. We'll come back within those moral guidelines, those moral boundaries. We will repent so that we may abide. That's the gist of living a righteous life. He says that if some, John says here, that if somebody is practicing righteousness, it's because they've been born again. They've been regenerated. It's not that they were born again because they practiced righteousness. That would be a false understanding of the gospel entirely. We're not born again because we practice righteousness. Rather, we practice righteousness because we're born again. Because God has done a work in us. So this is something that we have to look for in our lives and in the lives of others. Are we practicing righteousness? Is the fruit of righteousness apparent in our lives? You see, everything in the true Christian's life is being used by God toward one end. There's one thing that he's primarily trying to accomplish in our lives, and that is to have us grow in the likeness of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. That means that God is constantly, constantly, in all things that we do, good situations and bad, God is constantly at work on our character. He's constantly molding us. He's constantly shaping us to become more and more and more like Jesus. And if Jesus was perfectly righteous, and he was, it only makes sense that if we're becoming more and more like Jesus, we'd start to see the fruit of righteousness pop up in our lives. The true Christian will begin to demonstrate righteousness more and more and more in their lives in accordance with conformity to Christ's character. See, God's grace overwhelms the true believer. And that causes our hearts to not only long for the return of Jesus, but it also causes our hearts to desire to live a life that's pleasing to Him, which means becoming more and more like Him in our virtue and character. And so the longer we live as Christians, the more we come to understand this amazing outpouring of grace, which in turn produces joyful anticipation of His return and practical growth in righteousness, in the life of the true Christian. Here's the bottom line. God is righteous, and therefore, because His work reflects His nature and character to a lesser degree, the person who practices righteousness gives 
proof. They give evidence that they are indeed a new creation in Christ. That God has performed a miracle in their lives, has given them a living heart. That God has brought them from death to life. Those who practice righteousness, that is those who bear the fruit of righteousness, will only do so by abiding in Christ. Thus they will glorify God in their lives. And thus they will prove to be true disciples of Christ, true Christians. Not that they will trust in their own righteousness for salvation, as if their righteousness leads to salvation. No, they will trust fully and exclusively in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that any righteousness that they have flows out of salvation, not into So how about you? What's the basis of your confidence if Jesus were to return right now? Is it things that you've done? Do you think that you're basically a good person on your own apart from God's grace? Do you determine for yourself what is morally right and morally wrong? Or is the basis of your confidence on the day of His coming, the righteousness of Christ imputed or transferred to you and the way that you're learning to live that out. I would pray that you examine your lives regularly and honestly and that you would truly and correctly see in your life the fruit of righteousness. And if you don't, here's what you do. You get on your knees and you repent. You repent and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe, you ask him to help you believe. I would beg you to surrender the areas of your heart and your life in which you have rebelled against God and resisted submission to Christ's lordship in your life. Where, have you, where you have refused to be obedient to the commands of Christ. I would implore you to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ and that you would know that you are truly reconciled because you start to see the fruit of righteousness coming out in your life. But if, as you examine your life, you, you do see the fruit of righteousness, and I hope, I, I pray that you do, then hold fast to your hope of Christ's return. Abide in Christ because He is coming back to judge the living of the dead, the living and the dead. And if you are abiding in Christ faithfully and steadfastly and you see the righteousness of Christ being displayed in you and through you as you grow more and more in His likeness, then you can be confident that you are among the living when He judges the living and the dead. If you bear the fruit of righteousness, you will not need to be ashamed on that day. And you have every reason to joyfully, joyfully anticipate that day. Because the true Christian abides in Christ, they will not be ashamed at His appearance. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Friends, we live in 
very, very confusing times. But God's word gives us amazing clarity on the things that really matter the most. And so may we be found faithful and ready and abiding in Christ on the day of his return. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is inerrant. Your word is authoritative. And it speaks unparalleled truth into our lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we meditate on this this passage, that we would find in ourselves the fruit of righteousness, not that we have any righteousness on our own. We know that apart from you, we have nothing. We have no grounds to stand on. But you have imputed your righteousness to your people through your son, through his sacrifice, in order that we may stand before you as perfectly righteous, just as he is perfectly righteous. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at our lives, that we see the fruit of transformation, the fruit of righteousness, in order that we may do what you said, give glory to the Father, and prove to be your disciples. Oh, Lord, teach us. Teach us to be faithful. Teach us to abide. Teach us to obey and surrender. That you would be glorified in our lives. We live for that purpose. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Than I'll ever know. Take me deeper. Where you want me to go? We're so much greater than I'll ever dream. There's more to this life than I see. You are higher, greater, deeper, more beautiful, higher, greater, deeper, more beautiful, higher, greater, deeper, more beautiful, more beautiful. Take me deeper.